Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Jolly, and we have back with us uh, this week, Eki Tepsipornchai. So welcome back, Eki. It's good to have you. Always great to be on. I have to say, I really love your name. It's fun to say. <laughs> Eki Tepsipornchai. Yeah, it's, um, it's a mouthful. And um, both the first name and, and the last name would often get butchered uh, growing up. So you know, when people get offended over having their names mispronounced, um, for me, it's it's not a big deal. I'm so used to it. I get it. I, I mean, I share uh, some name issues, especially around Christmas time, because my last <laughs> name right. is Jolly. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and then growing up, it was uh, there. In fact, totally off topic. But when we were growing up, there was this green bean manufacturer that was the Jolly Green Giant green bean can. Wow. And and so as a kid, uh, yeah, the, the jokes were abundant with that. But anyway, I remember so, that brand, though. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think it's their fault. I hated vegetables as a kid. But um, <laughs> it, it, anyway, I can't, I can't make that excuse for myself. <laughs> uh, I, I got married to a wonderful woman who likes her vegetables and she cooks them in a way where I, I eat them now. So my wife does the same. Yep. But uh, well, anyway, look, last time we talked, we considered God's sovereignty and we just yeah. kind of talked about the comfort that that doctrine ought to bring to Christians, especially in uncertain times like we live in now. A couple of weeks have passed since we did that episode. And uh, so just kind of a recap, you know, we acknowledge that God has the right to do and does whatever he pleases. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter nine. I can't remember the verse, but. Um, you know, man, who are you to answer back to God? He says there, um, we recognize that, you know, God's sovereignty in our election is a gracious act, uh, because we don't get what we deserve, uh, which is eternal hell, but rather he loved us and redeemed us. Um, we think of, uh, yeah. And then just kind of think of ultimately everything that happens is under God's sovereign control, but that raises some questions which brings us to today's episode. So just speak a little bit to that and let's jump in. Yeah, so we talked last time about God's sovereignty and we went into some examples and I remember examples of out of Exodus from Moses and out of Job. We talked about Job and how God sovereignly brings about the d tribulations that Job has to go through, but it always leads to a question and oftentimes a certain straw man. In fact, uh, my wife ran into this with a church that she used to attend in Bakersfield, where eventually people who are very much against the idea that God is sovereign over all will ask you the question, well, then that means God is sovereign over evil. Well, he is sovereign over evil, but they would say that means God is to blame uh, for all mm -hmm. the evil because people can't do anything aside from what God allows them to do. And what they end up doing is they create this straw man like people are seeking after God. They're striving after God. They, they want to be good, um, but God's sovereignty is actually preventing them um, from, from doing what's good. And that's, <clears throat> that's one of these straw mans that comes about. And then the other, I think, is just a struggle, which I think all of us, you know, especially when we're growing in the Bible and we are confronted with the truth of God's sovereignty, but we also see the reality of man's responsibility. We struggle with that too. I think everyone does at some point. You struggle yeah. with that and try to figure out, well, where is the line? How do I figure out what I'm responsible for, uh, you know, in light of the fact that God is sovereign overall? So those are some of the issues right off the top of my head that uh, comes uh, that comes forth when we start talking about God's sovereignty. And I thought that this hour would be a great hour to really get into that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I so I, I think you kind of categorize people in two camps there, and I think it's fair to, to put those there, generally speaking. You've got folks who are genuinely learning, studying their Bible. They want to understand more of who God is and, and how our faith works here uh, on, on this side of eternity. And those guys are the guys that would, like you and I both did at some stage, uh, ask the question, well, how, how does sin and evil 
play into God's sovereignty? And that's a perfectly legitimate question. And then you've got the other camp, which often bring out the straw men, um, which, you know, in my experience, the majority of folks in that camp have issues just with God. Right. And, and it doesn't come from a place of wanting to learn and submit to God as he um, has described himself. It's really they want to be their own God or make their own God, and they're just opposing Scripture. And so um, I, I think for this episode, I really want to talk more to the group of people who are just maybe a little confused. They, they, they love God. They're growing in their faith. They want to grow in their faith and just not understand uh, that question of how evil, how, it, you know, how on earth could we have the administration we have if God is sovereign? You know, right. it's a question that a lot of people are asking. Um, a lot of people are talking about politics and those sort of things. And I, I don't want to go necessarily there, but I do want to deal with, um, yeah, just that very real question. And man, what greater times to deal with it than right now? Um, That's right. We live in a time that I, I can't remember any time in my life that works that has worked out quite like it is now. Yeah, we are dealing with, um, at least in my lifetime as well, unprecedented evil. I mean, especially when we think about where the abortion um, situation is, um, that we have a lot of people now that are openly calling for the ability to abort all the way up until birth. Um, we have the LGBTQ movement, which is at an all-time high, Planned Parenthood, which is right there um, at, the, at the high school campuses. I remember just a year ago, um, before the COVID shutdown, LA was talking about how they were planning to put 50 Planned Parenthoods right on the campuses of Los Angeles high schools. Wow. And the idea there is that students can go directly to Planned Parenthood without needing any kind of permission. They don't need to consult their parents. They don't need to talk to get, get any kind of permission from the schools. They can just go directly there and get whatever need they need to get taken care of to be taken care of. And then, of course, we've got, you know, the libraries and how we've got trans people um, who are telling stories to kids. And, and this is actually a program where they bring them in to tell stories to kids. And a lot of these folks are not vetted. And uh, we have seen in a number of different instances where pedophilia sometimes comes through um, this, mm -hmm. uh, this, this group as well. And so there, that's a huge concern. So, yeah, we are facing um, unprecedented, I would say, moral evil, at least in our generation. You know, of course, prior generations, they've gone through their fair share of stuff yeah. as well. So that, that's, that is our struggle. And I think what we have to realize when we go through the scriptures is that God does not promise heaven on earth. You know, we are told to look forward to, you know, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse mm -hmm. chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 talks about how you are to put your hope completely into the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Uh, and so we are to fix our hope completely on a future time when Jesus Christ will return. And we do that because we know that this world is still tainted with evil. We're still surrounded by people with evil. And at the end of the day, it's like what Jesus said, um, if the world hates you, know first that it hated me. And yeah. so when you read through those three chapters of John chapters, 14, 15, and 16 in the upper room just before Jesus Christ lifts up the high priestly prayer and it gets arrested. Those three chapters, I mean, Jesus Christ is preparing his disciples, um, saying that this is not going to be easy, but I'm giving you a helper. He's going to testify of me, and he, you, got, you guys are going to testify of me, and I'm going to give you a joy that the world cannot give you, but the world's going to hate you, and they're going to bring you before rulers, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we have those warnings all throughout scripture, and I think of Paul writing the letter of Second Timothy, right? Mm -hmm. um, preach the word. Uh, why? Because there's going to come a time where people are going to be seeking after um, teachers who will tickle their own ears. Um, so there, it's, it's a dark picture when we think about what scripture predicts will happen in the future prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we don't see, uh, or at least I can't see in scripture, a future that's painted as one that gets better and better and better in terms of humanity, you know, we see evil increasing or so it looks on earth. Um, and yeah, and, and scripture promises that we're going to go through these things. And so I think there, we can take great comfort in that not only are, are they happening, but they were predicted, right? They were, they, we were told they were going to happen. And then God gave us provision to go through those things. And that should offer us a great comfort. And so when we think about God's sovereignty, I mean, just I mean, just think about in God's sovereign wisdom, 
not only did he tell us we were going to have these times, but then yeah. he gave us everything we needed to persevere through them. I, that's an amazing thought. It's a comforting thought. Yeah, that, that is. And I think of um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Let me go ahead and read that. Uh, Philippians 1, 29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. And in the Greek, that word for granted, that's the same word for grace. It's grace turned into a verb. It's charizomai. So the idea is that it's been given to you by grace for the sake of Christ. And when we just hear that phrase, we think of eternal life. Well, of course, by grace, eternal life has been given to us. But Paul makes the point that, no, not only to believe in him. Of course, mm -hmm. you are to believe in him and have that eternal life, but it's been given to you by grace to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ. So we need to have the mindset that <clears throat> actually the way we can glorify God and the way we are made more like Christ is to be so centered on Christ, to be so infatuated in our love for Christ and to do his will, that it's even uh, a gift of grace to us that we're able to suffer in some of the ways that he did. And Paul gets into that in chapter three of Philippians too, that he strives, he, he strives to, to know the sufferings of Christ and to be more like Christ um, in his own personal testimony. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, we find so much comfort. In, and again, we would say, this is why every believer should be in their Bible, because if you don't know these things, right, then you can find yourself um, wondering how is God sovereign or, you know, how are you going to make it through the next day? And, and I think about, um, I, you know, Texas right now, who is weirdly colder than where I live here in Alaska. Um, you know, there are millions of people without power. They're in the middle yeah. of what's being called a pandemic. Um, they're dealing with just all the nonsense and another thing, right? Paul's on top of it. Um, and, and yet scripture gives us all that we need to be able to look at those circumstances and say, you know what, um, because, of, because of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, man, we're okay. Um, yep. if we go through hardship, we're okay. Uh, if we suffer, we're okay. We have provision for all those things. And we're talking about suffering, suffering. Uh, I just think of the Romans passage where Paul talks about that ultimately, um, suffering produces hope, right? Mm -hmm. And he goes through that whole passage where he talks about perseverance and hope and endurance. Um, and, and so we've lived a very comfortable life here in the West. And I think that has ended or is ending, uh, and it's okay, but let, but let's ask some of the question of, okay, well, how does God's sovereignty work with the fact that LGBTQ and, uh, you know, uh, murder, of infant children. Um, I, I, I don't really like the term abortion because it's murder. Uh, yeah. I think abortion is easier to say it's easier to keep what it is, but we have just absolute pure evil, uh, running our country now. So if, if God is sovereign, then how does that play into his sovereignty? How can we understand those things? And you brought up a term last time, theodicy, yeah. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about that question? Because I'm sure lots of people out there are genuinely asking the question. There's so much evil around. Right. I know that God's sovereign, but I just don't know what to do with with this. Right. Yeah. And, and what we don't do is we don't concede to that. And you're right. When we talk about abortion, we are talking about murder. Abortion is a softer term, and yet they don't even want to use the word abortion. You know, they want to use um, pro-choice. They want to say things like, it's just a clump of cells. It's not real life until they're born. So more and more, they're trying to soft pedal this mm -hmm. or really distort the reality uh, of the situation. But scripture, once again, is not, um, it's not silent on issues like this. Like for instance, when Jesus Christ came and remember the wise men came out of the East, they came to worship Jesus Christ. And what happened after that? Herod had um, all the male sons, all, all the sons of families uh, from two years old and younger, all slaughtered. Mm. And very similar in the book of Exodus, uh, we start the book of Exodus and we see that the nation of Israel is growing, uh, but they are crying out because of the, the oppression and the slavery that they're being put under. God hears their cries. He remembers the Abrahamic covenant that he would rescue them. And so he raises up Moses. But what happens during the time that Moses is born, that at that time, Basically, all newborn sons were being thrown into the river, right? They're being killed or 
thrown into the river and Moses was the only one that spared. And it would be another 80 years before he actually returns to be the, uh, the delivering instrument that God will use to get them out of slavery. So we look through history and we see a lot of evil in times where God is clearly working. And we remember that God allows people to pile up evil for themselves. They're piling up judgment uh, upon mm. themselves. You know, that's the idea of Romans chapter one. Can never go back to Romans chapter one too often. Yeah. Romans chapter one, verse 18 talks about how men and their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then we go mm. on to verses 24, 26, 32, that talks about how God hands them over to a debased mind. He hands them over to their own flesh. And, and basically the idea there is that you know, when you continue to disobey God, at some point, God is going to remove some of the restraints of evil upon your heart and give you over to greater evil. And essentially what you're doing is you're just piling up more and more judgment upon yourselves. And even when you think about Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus came and he's teaching the disciples. He's addressing the Jewish leaders that are coming about or around him. But then you get to Matthew chapter 13. And what do you see? He starts to speak to them in parables. Well, why is he speaking to them in parables? Because he is basically revealing truth to those who follow him, but he is concealing truth to those who yeah. stand against them. In other words, it's a way of just making them more angry and, and handing them over to basically whatever it is that they want to do instead of revealing to them the, the, the truth. So there is a very much a reality where God uses those whom he chooses, those whom are elect to be the light in the world and to be able to stand against evil around us. And oftentimes God is most glorified when we are willing to stand up, no matter how prevalent the culture is in terms of going the other way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, you, you've talked about it a few times. Uh, the reality is that God is sovereign. So whatever we believe else about the Bible, I, I like to tell people uh, when we get into doctrines that might be confusing, start with the highest level uh, truth right, that we know yep. and, and work using that. And so we know that God is sovereign. So why does evil exist? Well, evil exists because God allows it. Um, and men are responsible for the evil that they do, right? Um, God doesn't control us. God doesn't, you know, that's another straw man that, that gets thrown out, right, if God is sovereign. And um, especially when we talk about election, that sort of thing, are we robots and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you know, God, God allows men to make the choices that they want to make. And you know, the reality is men aren't more evil because of God's goodness in restraining that evil. Right. Right. If, if I, I think part of what we see now is, um, in, in some way, maybe I could, I could frame it in, in, in a way that it, God's removed some of that restraint right, from the wickedness that has already existed. Um, and so what we're seeing now isn't more evil than was there. We're just seeing more of what has already been in the hearts of men, um, and yeah, it's ruling our country. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, Mark chapter 7, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for lifting up the traditions of men as being like equal to God's word, right? <clears throat> and then he explains to his disciples that it's not what's on the outside that defiles the heart because they were being challenged about uh, cleansing rituals and all that, but it's basically what's on the inside. So we understand, and I think this can be very important as well. We both would affirm the depravity of man. Mm, we would both absolutely. affirm that God, God is holy. He is high and exalted, uh, but man is absolutely depraved. Uh, total depravity is sometimes the term we use to say that he is depraved in every part of his being. It doesn't mean that he's as evil as he possibly could be, not everyone becomes like an Adolf Hitler, but it does mean that he is evil in every single way. Yeah. Um, so we, we understand that, and we understand that that's what makes us who we are. And even when we think about, for instance, the book of Job, and we talked about that last time, Satan was already looking for people to afflict. God didn't force him to afflict anyone. Mm -hmm. Satan was already looking for that. And when we look at the example of Pharaoh, and I just got through teaching this um, a couple of weeks ago, when you look at the 10 plagues, we see that God is very clear that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we look at that initially and people will say, well, there it is. God caused Pharaoh to sin. Well, remember that we're not dealing with a neutral party here. Yeah. Pharaoh had already oppressed the Israelites. Now, this was the son of the one that initially started that oppression, but this Pharaoh was not changing anything. And when Moses even went to request, let our people go to Mount Sinai so that we may worship God, he continually refused them. And in fact, the first time that request came, he said, you know what, we're going to make their labor even harder. 
Um, so he is not a neutral party in all of this. And even when he heard the name of the Lord, Yahweh, he said, I do not know who this Yahweh is. You know, so yeah. we know that he is, he is evil. And even at various points, we see that he is also hardening his own heart. So the yeah. Lord hardens his heart at several steps of the way. But even when the Lord is not said to harden his heart, he actually hardens his own heart. So we see that even when he's given an opportunity, he shows that he still chooses the more wicked way. So this idea of hardening the, the heart is really what you just described. It's really kind of releasing, releasing more of the restraint that God has yeah. placed upon us by his grace yeah. to prevent this world from being as evil as it possibly could be. And America, especially from its founding, we have seen that. We, we have seen that this company has been able to, this country has been able to prosper. Um, we've been able to enjoy a lot of benefits. And to your point, uh, you, you know, a lot of the pains that we may be feeling this year, whether even if it's getting too cold because the heater goes out and, you know, and, and the, the energy, the, the energy efficient means um, no longer works and all that. Um, we still have for a long time had it really well compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. We have been made soft um, because of that. Now it's easy for me to say, I understand it could be really difficult to deal with these, these situations as they come up, we're not prepared for them. But we recognize, as you said, God is sovereign and he will get us through any kind of situation. It may not always be comfortable, but we have to fix our hope completely, not upon the comforts of this world, but we fix it completely upon the promises being brought in the next. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think when we talk about hardships and things like that, just to maybe kind of broaden our horizons and remind us a little bit, um, I mean, number one, Americans tend to live in a bubble. Most of the rest of the world experiences hardships on a daily basis, right? So our, you know, our having been sheltered from that, which I think is God's grace for us, is unique in the world. Um, but two, I mean, so you mentioned Second Timothy earlier. I mean, just just look at what was going on in that time. So I think Nero was the emperor during uh, the time of the writing Second Timothy. The apostle Paul, we believe, was in the Mamertine prison. Uh, and I, I mean, if you just do a little research on what that looked like. So he, he's in a round hole in the ground. Um, I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but something like 20 or 30 prisoners would fit in that. And the way they would often execute the prisoners, they would open a gate in in the side and let sewage fill up the prison cell and that would basically be the way that they execute a lot of prisoners so the apostle paul is down in this deep dark hole um in the mamertine prison and you know his concern is that timothy focuses on sound doctrine yeah right i mean he knows he's about to end his life so this is sort of like his last will and testament, as I like to call Second Timothy, um, at the end of his life, of all the things he could have said, he wrote Second Timothy. Um, and, and I have to believe that uh, consistent with the rest of Paul's messages, it, it, it's because his hope was in Christ. Um, his impending doom, as it were, was not of greatest consequence because his hope was in Christ. Um, it wasn't the first time he experienced hardship. Their life at that time um, you know, under Nero was unlike anything we can even fathom here. Um, I mean, Nero, the psychopath who was burning Christians at the stake, burned down Rome, blamed it on Christians, got away with it um, effectively. This is the environment they lived on. That's the environment that Paul said to Timothy, pray for those in the government, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, Nero right. is in charge. Um, and Paul says, pray for him. Um, and, and so when we read scripture, I, cultural context is so valuable. Um, it, it can provide a lot of richness uh, and, and in some cases prevent us from getting into um, just interpretation and in, interpreting wrong, wrongly things. But, but that was the environment they lived in. They lived in a hard, dangerous uh, world. And we have it very easy. And uh, like I said, that's changing. But as we read through these passages in Scripture, if, if we just um, kind of take a step back out of our American bubble and consider what their life was when the apostles were writing this stuff, it can be really, really encouraging. It doesn't – and I'm not trying to minimize suffering that we go through here, right? People are going through suffering that is very unusual for the Western world. 
Um, if lots of people have lost their businesses, they've lost their jobs, they've lost their homes, that's real hardship. And uh, we're not minimizing that, but we are saying that in times that have been far worse, uh, there was still this hope that we're trying to point you to today. Yeah, absolutely. I, you point out some very, very good truths, and, and there's a lot of rich insight in the cultural aspect that you mentioned. And, and that's why when we teach scripture, I mean, you know this, I know this, we want to encourage people to understand the historical context that a book was written. And sometimes you can get that, a lot of times you can get that just by reading in the scriptures itself, it'll give you that context. But some of it, you know, go back into the history, you know, look at the book of Acts or understand the history, understand who Nero was. And the amazing thing about Nero, we say that he was insane and he was crazy. This is not just from the Christian's viewpoint. You can read from Gentile historians who talk about how crazy he was. Yeah. And so when they talk about him as a ruler, I mean, he, he was just, he was a nutcase, right? <clears throat> and he was impaling Christians for a fire that they did not um, commit out of Rome. And it wasn't just, obviously, it wasn't just uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, but it was also Peter's first letter. Yeah. Peter's first letter, he writes out, and what does he say? He says, honor the king, right? He doesn't start off by talking about um, insurrection or, or fighting back. But instead, he, he says, be zealous for doing what is good, yeah. you know, and, and they won't harm you. And then he says, but even if they do harm you, you are blessed. So it's like uh, Peter actually portrays it as a win-win proposition. Yeah. Look, be zealous for what is good and they won't harm you. So that's a win. But even if you are zealous for good and they do harm you, that's a win also because you're going to be blessed. And then he goes on to say um, to regard Christ as holy uh, by being prepared always to give a defense for the hope that is within you. So the idea is that even in those situations, Peter expects us to be able to show to people that we are not in a panic. We're not going through, we're not looking for an insurrection. We're not slandering people. We're not doing anything else except loving on people and showing them that we have a hope in Christ. So, I mean, that's, that is a great point. And to the other point that you made about Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, and this is so pertinent to a lot of what you do, because I know you address a lot of people who um, are kind of on the vestiges of the Pentecostal movement and, and trying to address some of the some of the excesses of that and, and where they completely go overboard and get heretical and whatnot. But when you look at Paul, and I made this uh, point uh, recently, but Paul, he, he was uh, he, he was an apostle, he was a prophet, he was an evangelist, he was a pastor, he was a teacher. He did signs and wonders. He went on three missionary journeys and then was in prison onto a fourth journey up to Rome. Um, he has been beaten and uh, mistreated in every way possible. Um, this despite his Jewish heritage and being a former rising superstar in the ranks. He has started numerous churches. He has written the majority of the epistles and nearly half of the number of books in the entire New Testament. And so of all the things that he has done, all the things that he represents, here he is writing to his son in the faith, his successor in the faith. And what is it in chapter four? And it's the strongest command that he gives in all chapter four, because he starts off by saying, I solemnly charge you in the mm -hmm. presence of God and Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. So he, he starts off by saying, okay, Timothy, here's the commandment. This is the most important commandment I'm going to give to you. And here it is, preach the word. And so as he is dying, that's what he cares about most. And the reason why he can do that um, is, to your point, he doesn't view suffering the way we view suffering. You think back to Philippians 1, and he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he viewed dying as gain. And, and this is like um, accounting language. This is like finance language. This is the idea of, of profit and loss. You know, and, and when you think about that sentence, to live is Christ and to die is gain, if you replace Christ with anything else, say, to live is wealth to live as family, to live as fame, to live as whatever, whatever cause you can think of. Well, the rest of the sentence doesn't make sense because dying is not gain. Any hope that you have in this world, death is the loss of those things. But in the case of Christ, when your reason for living is Christ, then actually dying is even better because it becomes gain. Yeah. Yeah. I, those are great points. I mean, and and you see this, um, you know, theology of suffering all throughout Scripture, and you know, we sh that's not to say we should go look for it. That's crazy, um, but yeah, just acknowledge all through Scripture we we see that. And Paul, I mean, Paul is such an incredible example of being able to suffer well, 
um, and it producing a hope, it producing character, it producing, um, you know, a greater faith. I, I mean, you can read through his account. I forget where it is now, how many times he's been shipwrecked and he's been whipped, you know, three or four times and he's been hungry. Uh, he's been in the deep. He's been, you know, in cold. And, and yet you, what you don't see um, is Paul shrinking back from faith. If anything, uh, it, it, he seems to go stronger and harder and further. Um, and, and yeah, and, and that should be our disposition here. We see it, it might look like, um, you know, evil is triumph, you know, is triumphant, but that's not the case. Right. Um, I, I think we see a lot of good things that are uh, obvious if we look for them. One is, man, the, the church is being purified. Um, there is a dividing line now, like I have never, ever seen in my life, uh, those who profess Christianity, um, and are not believers are becoming crystal clear, like never before those who have a different gospel. Um, you, you know, there's no longer this ruse of false unity for the sake of the quote gospel. Now there has to be a defining of what the gospel is and it's separating, uh, you know, those who are true brethren and those who aren't. And, and I, I tend to think, you know, I'm happy about that. I think oftentimes we just assume that all division is evil, but God himself divides, right? Uh, separating out um, false teaching, false teachers, false brethren, that's a good thing, and we ought to be happy about that. And this is God purifying his church. When God comes back, he's coming back for a beautiful, spotless, ready bride, um, and so I, I think we can look at these kind of situations and sure, there can be some sadness, um, especially as we grieve over people who, you know, are abandoning in the faith that, you know, we assume we're brothers, we can grieve over that. And yet I think we can rejoice in that God is, is purifying the church here. And yeah, that's a good thing. Oh, amen. And th that was one of the blessings that I took out of 2020 as well. I mean, prior to all this happening, we always want to be a little bit careful about the divisions that we draw, because obviously yeah. we want to be united with people that believe the gospel itself, that Jesus Christ is the only way, that he's the son of God. Basically, those first order doctrines that we know undergirds the gospel message itself. And so I think it's good to be cautious and, and not wanting to create unnecessary division. And that's always a tension that we have struggled with. But I think in 2020, um, the, the, the tension is no longer there because, as you've mentioned, for a lot of these folks, the divide has become very clear where we see where they're going. We see what they're affirming. And we look at that and say, there is no way that we can fellowship with someone who says what that person says or believes what that person believes. So we got more people that are insinuating that the word of God, or not even insinuating, but saying very explicitly that the word of God is not the word of God, right? Yeah. That, that uh, we, we can't trust all of the Bible, that there's um, a Bible within a Bible where we can only trust the red letters in the New Testament, or that Paul went against Peter and Paul was against Jesus, you know, and all this kind of nonsense. And so I think the last couple of years, I agree with you, it has become a, a lot clearer. And on, on the other hand, not only has it revealed those who are false, but unfortunately, people that we would have considered to be solid, it is also shown that they're not as solid as we had thought. Whereas previously, I would have said they absolutely affirm a very, um, a very sound gospel, but when we see them, they're being diverted away from these false doctrines, either from cultural pressure, um, or maybe just their own mind is changing or, or whatever. But God brings about these situations in order to reveal those who actually are willing to stand firm yeah. upon his truth. And it goes back to what the serpent said from the Garden of Eden, has God really said? Yeah. And I think that's what yeah. we're seeing over and over and over again. We're seeing a lot of people who used to affirm the inerrancy of scripture, but now in various ways, very subtle, they are basically saying, well, has God really said? And that's yeah. what, what's happening. And in some ways, not so subtle. Um, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. And, you know, several passages come to mind. Uh, you know, I, I, a profession of Christianity in and of itself means absolutely nothing. Um, you know, and I think uh, in, in Matthew, um, it, it says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, right. did we not? And they have this whole laundry list of good things, Christian things that they've done. And he says, depart from me, for I never 
knew you, right? Um, yeah, and, that's, and there's every that, indication that these people looked like, smelled like, acted like, you know, they were in. Um, and, and yet, it's not that they started right and well, it's that they never, right, uh, were with God. And that, that's a scary passage, but I think we're seeing a lot of that. We realize that, you know, someone that leaves the faith is because they were never of the faith. And we, we see those things um, more and more, I, I think, all the time. And so, you know, I, yeah, the profession of Christianity is, is good, right? And certainly we do make a profession. You profess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you're saved. So we get that. But, but if you don't have that uh, second part, believing in your heart, um, and so if your life doesn't reflect your profession, then your profession means nothing. Um, so e- e- even the demons know and they tremble, right? Yes. But yeah, they and, certainly and, are outside of God's grace. Right, right. And, and that's the, so th- that comes down to what it really means to believe. You know, if we believe, and, and often what the Bible presents is to repent and put your faith into Christ, right? Repent of your sins, repent of your former manner of living, turn towards God. And Jesus Christ himself says, count the costs, right? Count the costs if you're going to be my disciple, because I point this out often when we call Jesus Christ Lord, Lord is not just some honorary title. Lord is to essentially call him master. That's the yeah. Greek word kurios. It means both uh, Lord and master. It's basically what slaves call their own masters. So in calling Jesus Lord, it's not just a title with no meaning, but it's a title to say that we now follow after someone. We follow after a person. We, we do what, what he says. And to your point, there's you know, I think both of us would affirm that once you're truly saved, you're always saved. You can't lose your salvation. Yeah. I know that yeah. we both uh, affirm that, but the real question is, okay, but were you truly saved to begin with? And that's the first John two nineteen that they went out of us to show that they were never truly um, with us, right? Or they yeah. went out from us uh, in order to show that they were never, tr- never truly of us. Yeah. So, to, so we see people walking away from the faith. It doesn't mean that they were saved and they kind of changed their mind, but rather they were never truly saved to begin with. And something that I've noticed, and I suspect that you've noticed this too, in those times, and there's been numerous times where we have read um, testimonies of people that walked away from the faith, so to speak. They walked away from the faith and they provide a testimony of why they walked away from the faith. And when I read that testimony, I never read anywhere that they believed the gospel. Yeah. I don't hear, I don't see elements of the gospel in it at all. What I see is that they decided to join this church because they loved the people that they were there. They loved the idea of it. These were really nice people. And at some point they were disappointed either by people. They were disappointed by questions not being answered. They were disappointed yeah. by, you know, just, just the way maybe Christians viewed uh, other people or other religions and, and whatnot. So you, you look at these testimonies and almost every single time I, I see a complete absence of the gospel that's there. So we do want to recognize that when people profess, the question is, okay, what is it that they're professing? And, and on the flip side too, we don't want to make the mistake of legalism, right? So if someone yeah. is not showing fruit of the spirit, you know, not the, the question is, it, the question shouldn't be, well, why aren't you showing fruit? You need to show fruit. It should be, wait a second, do you really believe? Yeah. You know, so we, we don't want to get caught in this legalism says that says, OK, you're not showing fruit. So you need to focus on showing fruit. I truly believe that every believer has demonstrative fruit from the moment they're saved. And I, I think if we don't get into the habit of trying to prove someone's not a believer, then we can see some fruit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe the best place to go would be Ephesians chapter two. When I think of Ephesians chapter two, verses one to ten, this is basically the biography for every Christian. And it starts off by saying, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. And we know from the book of Ephesians, if you've done a study of the book of Ephesians, the word walk is a key term throughout this letter. And so he talks about here how you formerly walked, and that really refers to our conduct, our behavior, the way we lived our lives. So we lived in a way that reflected the deadness that we were in, according to those trespasses and sins. And then we see verse four says, but God being rich in mercy. And verse five says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together again. So we exhibited no fruit uh, prior to our salvation. But then when you think of verses eight through 10, eight and nine, of course, is for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the work of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. But verse 10 often gets um, overlooked. And this is a very important verse. And I think it speaks to the need and the importance of being able to bear fruit. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we see the word walk show up again. And when you get past chapter three, when you get to chapters four and five, um, you see the word walk repeated over and over again in terms of commands. Do not walk like the Gentiles, walk in love and walk in wisdom and, and those kinds of things. But when we look back at Ephesians chapter two, we see that we were created for good works so that we would walk in those good works. And so while our works do not save us, someone could rightly ask the question, well, what about the book of James when James says, mm. um, your faith without uh, works is dead? Well, that's true. We're not saying that works um, is, is what earns you your salvation, but we're saying that if you have true faith, it should lead to real demonstrative works. Yeah. Now we, and, and to your point, we still don't always know for sure who really is saved and who's not. And it's, you know, it's as simple as whether a person truly believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that, that he is both Lord and Savior, and, and if they're living according to that reality. But we can't see into people's hearts to be able to determine whether they really see that or believe that. And as I had mentioned, we have read many testimonies of people that walked away from the faith. They walked away from the faith, and a lot of people look at that and say, well, see, they used to be Christians, but they wised up and they left the faith. Well, Here's the thing, when we look at those testimonies, and you've seen it, I've seen it, so often I'll look at these testimonies and I'll see there's no gospel in those testimonies. Yeah. And so we, we look at that and, and recognize, well, people are walking away from the faith, but just from this testimony, it just goes to show that they never truly believed uh, to begin with. And some people will come back and say, well, that's kind of that no true Scotsman fallacy. But no, that's not the fallacy, because we know that those who are in Christ understand the gospel, they they receive the gospel, they respond to the gospel, and once they are truly regenerated in that way, they'll never yeah. turn back. That That's the blessings of the regenerated heart, as well as the gift of the Holy Spirit that is working in us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are tons of people out there, and again, you know, we see it all the time on Facebook and Twitter and social media, um, it, you know, guys who say they're Christian, but then when they spell out for you what that looks like, it looks nothing like what's in scripture. Um, you, you know, so if you believe the Bible is, you know, just totally man-made, it's not the word of God, that Paul contradicts Jesus, and, you know, that anything Paul says that you don't like, you can dismiss, I guarantee you're believing a different gospel. Um, you just, some things you cannot believe and still be in the Christian faith. If you, um, you know, if, if you're ending your prayers in, uh, you know, with feminine pronouns attributed to God, you probably aren't believing the right gospel. Um, you, you know, those kind of things. And so let, let me kind of tie all this together because I think it might seem like we've sort of jumped all, all over the question of God's sovereignty. So if God is sovereign, uh, R.C. Sproul would correct me there and say, since God is sovereign, um, how does the fact that we have an evil administration uh, that's basically taken over our country uh, that wickedness is running rampant. Uh, it, since God is sovereign, how does how do we reconcile the fact that uh, the church is being split um, all over the place? How do we reconcile the fact that just the so-called liberal theologians who are, are teaching utter blasphemy and nonsense, how does it seem like they're becoming so popular and widespread and faithful churches are getting shut down or small. How do we reconcile all of that? And, you know, I, I would say that the, the beginning for me um, would, would say we need to recognize that in God's sovereignty, um, he allows all of these things ultimately in a way that will glorify him. Um, we may not always understand, and in fact, we will not understand all the intricate details, but we have to trust that in God's perfect knowledge, in his omniscience, right, the one who sees all space and time, past, present, and future, who knows all possibilities, all uh, things that could have been, that might be, um, it, we trust that in, in his omniscience, in his sovereignty, that these things are exactly what he says, uh, ultimately to 
work for his glory. And, and then we can dig into scripture and, and reconcile some things, but we're never going to fully understand. What we do know is God is never the author of sin, although um, he will certainly use the sinfulness of men because he lets us make our own choices many times, most of the time, but he'll still use that to bring about good. Uh, we think of um, Joseph, right? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God certainly used the evil intentions of his brother to save a nation, right? To bring about good, not just for him and his family, but for all of Christendom, really. Yeah, jump in there. Speak to that, brother. Yeah, I, I was just thinking once again back to the story of the Exodus and, and Moses at mm. that time and how God told Moses on multiple occasions that I am going to harden the heart of Pharaoh so that everyone may know that I am the Lord. And he does that for his glory. And we see the effect of that even when Joshua goes into the promised land with Israel. And who do they run across? They send two spies in and they run across Rahab, right? And what does Rahab say? We heard about what happened and we were terrified. So God absolutely does everything for his glory. And I'm looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, where we read, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Mm. So we know that Pharaoh is one of those wraths that was prepared for destruction. But verse 23 is pivotal here. He says, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory mm. upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So everything God does revolves around his glory. And we don't see the goodness of God without understanding the evil that's in the world. So we need to be able to see the evil and, and see the effect of sin in mankind upon this world all around us. And we're seeing that very clearly today. And the more clearly we see it, the more God is glorified when we recognize his holy standard in contrast to mm -hmm. that. But in addition, God is looking to glorify himself through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you had mentioned that judgment starts within the church. I mean, that's First Peter. First Peter says that judgment begins in the household of God, right? So we know it's beginning within the church, it's purging the church, and oftentimes these situations are brought about in order to test us, but also to strengthen us in our faith, and the result is going to be something that's much more pure, and is going to be able to stand much stronger, um, be much more clear, and be able to glorify God in these difficult circumstances that are coming about, and it's kind of like um, Ezekiel chapter 3, when God tells him, you are the watchman of Israel, we as the church are essentially the watchmen for God, and yeah. we are here to let people know that this is sin, regardless of how it is that they respond to it. So even if we were to be martyred, and I don't think we're quite there yet, I think that's getting closer and closer, but even if we're not going to yet see people actually getting martyred for their faith in this country, uh, we know that if that were to come about, God still does it for his glory. Um, the same with the disciples of Jesus Christ, all of them except for the apostle John. And of course, he yeah. was stranded on an island by himself, um, and the rest of them were martyred for their faith. And so we recognize that, yeah, we see example after example that sometimes the glory of God is just showing how convicted we are that we're mm. willing to give up this life in exchange for the eternal life. Yeah. And that's, that's part of really just being a testimony to how much we believe in the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and another one, another passage, Romans eleven thirty six. 36, uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Um, and, and while we may not, again, understand the intricacies of how that works, understanding God's sovereign, uh, his sovereignty is to understand that it's within God's sovereign plan to use human means and instrumentality, right, to bring about his purposes. So uh, when we talk about God's sovereignty, you know, it, it, what we don't mean is that God makes us do everything that we do. Um, you know, God certainly can harden our hearts, um, turn us over to, to wickedness. He certainly can override our will in instances if he wants to do that. Um, that's not usually how God functions. Um, and, and then we have, you know, just the thing of, well, if God's sovereign, then why evangelize, right? And the reason is twofold. One, because we're commanded to do that. And two is to understand what I've just said previously. Uh, God's sovereign plan is to use human means. And so we, we do those things. And the apostles understood um, in their death, God was glorified and God used um, often a, a, a human, an evil, 
right? The martyrdom of the apostles was a great evil done. It was an injustice done. Um, Christ's own crucifixion, right? What greater evil uh, than to crucify the son of the living God? Right. Um, and yet God foreordained that to be the way um, that he would bring about the ultimate sacrifice for, for us to redeem us. And so um, God is not like man. God is God and we are not. Uh, as I said on Twitter recently, and it, there was a lot in that statement, uh, but it's just to recognize, the, you know, where Scripture talks about how um, higher God's ways are than ours. Uh, sometimes we just can't reconcile everything, but we can put our faith and trust in the fact that in God's sovereignty, um, the things that He allows, the things that happens are for our good, those who have been called and saved, and for His glory, and we can trust in those things, and that should bring us a great comfort. Um, I, I want to read a quote from John Calvin. I, I think it is just a great quote uh, speaking to the sovereignty of God. He says it this way. Um, First, it must be observed that the will of God is the cause of all things that happen in the world. And yet God is not the author of evil, adding, uh, quote, for the proximate cause is one thing and the remote cause another. In other words, God himself cannot do evil, and he cannot be blamed for evil, uh, even though that's part of his sovereign decree. So God uses everything while simultaneously not being the author of evil. And so we can understand why man is responsible for his own evil actions um, and how God is still sovereign over all those things at the same time. Yeah, let me add a couple of verses to that. Um, you're absolutely right. Amen to everything that you just said. Um, in Matthew chapter 26, 20, verse 24, um, Jesus says, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that ma man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus Christ is saying that I am about to go. I'm going to be arrested. And the idea is he's going to be arrested and falsely accused and tried and crucified <clears throat> and, and ultimately killed. And so he's saying, this is the way it has to be because this is what has been written. And yet, woe to that man. And that's a reference to Judas, who is going yeah. to betray him and hand him over. Judas in his heart was not forced by God to betray him. Judas in his heart wanted to betray him. Yeah. And God was so sovereign that he was able to use that action to actually send Jesus Christ to the cross. And that's where the sovereignty of God just must blow our mind. Yeah. And not only there, but also in Acts chapter 2, the first sermon from the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, he says this, he says, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So in other words, Peter is saying this man was handed over because it was God's plan to hand him over. And yet you are responsible for actually sending him to his death, yeah. um, having him nailed to the cross. And so we have to recognize that when we and, and this is why the depravity of depravity of man is so important. When you understand the depravity of man, you understand that God doesn't need to control us for us to do evil. We do evil anyway. That, that's just that's just in our nature. But God's sovereignty is such that even when we do evil, we have no choice in that evil but to actually fulfill God's will. Yeah, um, And that's, that's when the sovereignty of God should give us absolute comfort. And I told my church this just this past Sunday, sovereignty, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which I rest my head. Because the sovereignty of God really helps to give us comfort. It should give us comfort in every single situation knowing that nothing is outside of God's control. And even as I was teaching um, in, in a class recently that the word of God, we can be confident in all 66 books that we have received. And the number one reason for our confidence, there are many reasons, but the number one reason is the sovereignty of God. Hmm. Right? Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse eight, the word of our Lord stands forever. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> so, we, so yeah, the sovereignty of God gives us comfort, but does not relieve us of responsibility. And even the challenge right, between... Um, Satan and Job, uh, I'm sorry, Satan and God with regards to Job, the whole challenge was Satan was saying, he's going to curse you to your face. And God says, okay, go ahead and afflict him. And what I'm telling you is that he will not do it. Now, God did not force or prevent Job from actually cursing him. Mm -hmm. But Job, yeah. uh, just he, he actually 
he, he actually failed, or I shouldn't say failed, he succeeded the challenge. He, um, Satan failed in trying to get him to, to curse him. Mm -hmm. So we even see in that early story that there is a responsibility there that was placed upon Job, and Satan was not able to get Job to curse God no matter how hard he tried. Yeah. So all throughout, whether we are a believer, or whether we're believers in the household of God and we're called to obey, or whether we're looking at unbelievers, we're looking at the politicians of the world, we're looking at our leaders in this nation, we're making these terrible decisions, pushing forward these evil policies and programs and all that. We recognize that everyone is doing according to what their heart wants them to do and not according to what God is, quote unquote, forcing them to do, which is often the straw man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, which is why we have to maintain a heart of obedience. Um, I, I mean, no, no greater summation of the test of, of salvation other than when Jesus said, you love me if you obey my commandments, yeah. right? And so uh, a, a genuine believer is going to have a heart attitude of obedience, not perfect in execution because none of us are going to get there, um, but it's going to be a heart that longs for those things that are good, that are compassionate, that are, you know, the gentleness, the patience, uh, the good things of God. And so if we find that our heart is longing and lusting after the things of the world, it might be a good indication that our faith and trust isn't truly in Christ. And we're saying a lot of that. And so God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, um, you know, just as an ending encouragement, uh, you know, we have the the administration that we have today because it fits in God's sovereign plan and ultimately it's good. And yet as believers, we fight against evil. I think in every way we're able to, we do it biblically, we do it rightfully. Um, and, you know, we go about the business of the church of the believers to make disciples, right? Teaching all that Christ taught, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the church should thrive in these times. I think it always has historically. Um, it's not pleasant, but it's good. And so we can take a deep breath um, and we can battle against the evil, knowing that that that's our responsibility. And that in the midst of all of that, whatever the outcome is, God is working it out for his glory and for the good of his church. And that is good news. Amen. Amen. And, and just to tack on to, I think, a very important point that you made, none of us are perfect, right? Um, we know that the more faithfully we are walking with God, the more useful we are for his purposes. Um, but we don't um, get over, you know, we don't, we don't focus just on the fruit. It all starts with, um, with faith and, and what it is we believe. Yeah. And I just want to say this, because I know you would affirm this. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're continuing to grow we feel that battle within us, right? There's the yeah. battle of the flesh and the spirit. That's Galatians 5. And that is constantly going to be there. So we're going to feel that battle. There are going to be times where we lose. We, uh, we come to God and, and repent. Uh, we turn around, turn towards God, repent to that and, and continue pushing forward. And over time, we become more and more like Christ. And I would say for people who are out there who are hearing this, saying, well, I, I, I struggle with sin and I struggle with this and I struggle with that. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm truly saved. And, and that gets into the just looking at the fruit part whether rather than looking at what it is you believe. Mm -hmm. And from my experience, and I don't know if this has been your experience, but in my experience, when people struggle, um, that usually to me is a good sign that they want to be in God's good graces, right? That, yeah. that they actually yeah. do believe, but they're, they're getting lost in, in, in the law or the commandments. You know, of course, these are the fruit that we are expected to exhibit. We should exhibit that, but the struggle is still real. And the question always comes back to what is it, what is it that you you believe? And so, to me, people who are who are deceived, um, people who are not in the faith, don't have that struggle. Yeah, right. They call themselves Christians, and they never they never stop to question their their own fruit or their own walk, or you know, they don't have those kinds of concerns. And so often I tell people that it's usually a good sign when you have that concern um, because you're reading the scriptures and you want to be right by God. So this is not to say that we reach a point of perfection where we never stumble. And I, I've seen people that um, have particular challenges in one area and, and they're doing great in other areas. And we always want to press forward and excel still more. But I want to encourage everyone who is hearing this that ultimately this comes down to, do you believe that Jesus Christ 
is Lord and Savior, that he died and was resurrected on the third day. And by his death and his death alone, do you receive the righteousness of God so that you'll be um, received by God the Father? I mean, if you believe that, then that's that's really it. That's the gospel. Yep. Well, thank you, brother. There's no greater thing to end this show than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, guys, uh, we thank you for joining us. Eki, thank you for joining us on the podcast here. Always and, a pleasure. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.